Derivatives Podcast. I'm here with David Brickell. He is the Director of Institutional Sales over at Paradigm. David, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Greg. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really happy that you came on. I thought, you know, maybe we could start with a little bit of your background, um, how you got to Paradigm and CryptoVol, and, and kind of take it from there, and then we can explore uh, further what's going on in the macro world. Yeah, so um, I guess career-wise, I uh, spent about 18 years sort of macro trading and sales across um, several top-tier investment banks um, in a mix of sort of rates and FX, um, so very much the sort of macro uh, kind of leans to everything I've done. Um, I actually started life as an economist um, sort of all moving into trading roles. Um, so so that, that was... That, that was my career. Um, I was at Lehman's in 08, so I, uh, I had a front row seat to things that were going on there. Um, and post Lehman, a, a big part of my kind of macro thesis was this Japanification of the Western world. Mm. Um, the idea that we'll need ever larger central bank balance sheets um, that will necessitate ever lower real rates um, and all the issues that causes with currency debasement. Um, I still kind of think we're in that world, uh, despite this tightening cycle that we've seen. Um, and ult- ultimately, what, what that meant was, you know, the, the, the response of the Fed and, and other central banks in 08 was to artificially inflate the assets in the system, because that was the collateral that was underpinning the financial system. And once you kind of walk through that door, I, it was like you, you can never really step back um, and step away from it. So therefore, you're constantly going to be artificially um, inflating assets and, and essentially debasing fiat currency. So, so the question became, you know, what, what's, what's the end game? Mm. And for me, the end game was 08. That's where we should have had the reset. But I understand that that's less difficult decisions for, for any policymaker to sit back and let happen. Um, so for a long time, I was sort of long gold um, and just sort of long assets, property, NASDAQ, you know, just, just, you, you, you can kind of, you know, pick what you want and be long. Um, and then, then I got introduced to Bitcoin. Um, and then it started to put the idea in my head that maybe, you know, maybe the existing system doesn't collapse or disappear, but we kind of slowly migrate to a new system. Mm. Um, so that started my kind of interest in Bitcoin, uh, which kind of grew is more like, you know, just buy and hold investors still am, um, Badly ran some scalping bots for a little bit. Uh, didn't make much money. It wasn't my thing at all. Um, but meanwhile, sort of carrying on in bank, um, and, and my, my interest in, in crypto kind of grew. And then I think, like in the post Mifid world um, in banking, I think FX world of FX got quite dull. Um, vols collapsed to I think at one point euro dollar vols on a four handle. And and I think more and more my my mind was turned to, towards crypto and, and looking to move my career. Um, I was looking to do it in in like 2019 uh, career wise, and then COVID happened um, in 2020, um, and then so stayed put for a bit. And then in, in 2021, sort of made the jump, and um, yeah, long story short, ended up at, at Paradigm, where I'm now as director of sales and and sort of heading up things in London. That's fantastic. Well, there's a lot that I want to dig in there. So I definitely <laughs> want to dig into being at Lehman during the financial crisis. That's super fascinating. I want to just touch on real quick. So for those who don't know, or maybe for my own interpretation, so you say the Japanification 
of sort of the Western world. So that's the idea that Japan had this big property bubble uh, and then and market crash and essentially all these corporations were under. The Central Bank of Japan was sort of the first one to have zero interest rate policy, zero balance, quantitative easing, all that stuff, and create essentially zombie corporations where their equity is negative, but they're still kind of running. Um, and, and the idea that that's a trap you can't escape. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's like a perfect description. Um, and, and then uh, adjoin to do that, you know, very similar kind of dynamics, certainly from sort of poor demographics and, and, mm. and, and aging, uh, aging demographic, um, you know, huge, huge debt and, and debt in, in itself is typically sort of disinflationary over time. Um, so there are huge similarities, but yeah, the response was, was pretty much exactly what, what Japan's done. Um, and it, yeah, created zombified economies and, and, uh, difficult to ever really escape from it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's an interesting point about the demographics where for those who don't know, Japan has sort of the, the largest aging population. Japanese people live very long, they eat very healthy, um, and essentially you have this, you, typically you have this pyramid where retiring population is smaller than the working age population, so you can tax the working age to pay the benefits, but if it flips upside down, then from a government expense perspective, it's really unsustainable. Do you, do you see those same sorts of demographic trends uh, in the Western world, or is it different because of migrate, immigration policies and stuff like that? Well, yes, I do. I think the, the trends are, are very much the same. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, interesting as well, we, we've been seeing those those trends start to play out in China as well. Wow. Um, so we, we, can't, we kind of have this global Japanification uh, going on. Um, and, and we're all at different stages in that. But yeah, yeah absolutely. We, we're seeing that. Um, and, and, you know, you, you're seeing the problems that, it, that it's causing. Um, I mean, despite sort of high nominal growth in the U.S. at the moment, um, you, you know, you saw low tax receipts. Um, and we're, we're, we're again talking about another debt ceiling that needs to be lifted. Um, and, we're, yeah, we just we just can't escape that. Um, so, yeah, I, it's it's difficult. I mean, we, we, we've maybe immigration helped a little bit. Um, and now but now we kind of you know, this sort of populism that, that exists and, and pushing against uh, against immigration and, and this sort of deglobalization movement. Um, and, and then there's the, the technology, again, is another interesting kind of mm. factor in all of this, in that technology as well is, like forms part of my sort of uh, disinflation or deflationary view of the world. Um, you know, how, how much of those those offshore jobs um, in, in a, when we go back to this onshoring world just get replaced by the robots mm. um, and, and more people out of work. So kind of think it, overall you're seeing and, you, and you'll see this move towards there being less people in work, which becomes an issue when you've got a retired population that, that all need looking after. Yeah, that's fascinating. The idea that technology is disinflationary is really an interesting inflection point right now with AI and ChatGPT. So, like, can we, if we can solve complex problems very quickly, that frees up a lot of time and essentially things become cheaper. Um, that's a really interesting inflection point. Real quick, kind of just jumping back a little bit. So, you mentioned you're an economist. You work at at FX uh, trading desks. So, Lehman Brothers, RBC. I think I saw on LinkedIn. Um, is FX sort of the, the main bread and butter for sort of a global macro guy like yourself? Is that sort of the main place to, to play? 
Yeah, it, it was funny because I, I started my career on the rate side. That I was at RBS and, and then Lehman's. And um, after Lehman's happened, I ended up actually at HSBC um, before going to RBC. And <laughs> HSBC was when I crossed over into FX. And it's funny that because in a bank, there's always this snobbery between like rates and FX. Mm. Like, like, like FX was seen as, you know, the kind of borough boys um, of the market. And uh, whereas rates was a little bit more sophisticated or, or deemed to be so. But I actually found FX was a far more kind of macro product um, in that, you know, rate, rates. And, and you'll often see in any of my writing and, and, and even the way I think about crypto, but like rates and FX... You know, rates are such a big driver of FX. So to understand FX, you need to understand rates. But then there's so many more things that impact FX from from politics, um, from M&A and what's going on in the corporate world and sort of flows there. Um, like it's just a, a far more sort of macro, uh, macro product. Um, again, like if, if I'm thinking... Like, if you're thinking about the dollar now, like, you know, and we can get into this, but whilst I think the Fed have kind of hit this pause, you know, front-end rates, if we're at a pause, aren't going to do a lot. Mm-hmm. But the dollar might do a lot as it starts to factor in other things, be it the debt ceiling, uh, be it some of the political situations going on, um, you know, and, and, and all these other things you need to take in. So I, I kind of feel like FX in, in many ways was like the ultimate macro product. Yeah, that's really interesting. So just to summarize my understanding, so it's like typically FX is downstream of rates because rate differentials will set the trends for FX pairs. But outside of of that, there's a a lot of different factors that affect rates as well. I mean, FX as well. So maybe going back to Japan, like when the tsunami hit in 2011 and we had repatriation for insurance payouts, the yen went crazy, rallied super hard. So that's kind of a, a thing that you can't predict with rates. So FX is the playground for all these other events in the macro world that the rates guys are just not paying attention to. Is is that a way to think about it? it yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just it's just kind of so many so many things that the value of a currency has to incorporate um, that that are out. You know, there's so many dynamics to it. So um, yeah, and you see in that in terms of. Uh, emerging markets are interesting in that, you know, we we kind of think, you know, simplistically in the Western world, like central banks that are hiking rates means the currency goes up. Mm-hmm. But actually, so, and it's a lot easier to think about the rate path, but then, then you see the currency get sold off. But actually, if you're hiking rates because you've got this out of control inflation situation or have you, which you typically associate in the market, emerging markets, then you know, you're 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 then just killing growth as well as, as mm-hmm. and you you've got this stagflationary and then the currency goes down. So you're kind of juggling and weighing up all, all these different factors. And then obviously, particularly in EM, you have you have these like political instabilities and and all those things. How does that impact impact things? So um, yeah, there's just I, I think there's just a lot more that that's encompassed in determining the price of a currency, and which is why I. I, I typically say I think currency and FX and, and the dollar, given its central role, tends to sniff out regime change uh, quicker than any other asset class. Mm. So when I start to see the dollar change or the trends change in the dollar, um, it's always one that I look at to go, right, something's maybe changing here, like what's going on here? And 
you know, I, I got obviously quite bullish uh, crypto um, really sort of late November, early December when I started to say, look, I, th- I think the lows could be in for crypto and for mm. stocks. And a big part of that was I felt we were starting to shift into this change in macro regime uh, where we were kind of, we'd gone from, you know, that, that sharpest Fed tightening cycle in history, um, you know, double digit inflation to now like the peak inflation, peak rates, peak Fed um, and moving into a, a different, a completely different macro regime into 2023. And it felt like the dollar was just maybe starting to pick mm-hmm. that up early um, and starting to price that. And then from that, you start looking at other things that may um, sort of reinforce that idea. But yeah, I, I kind of felt like the dollar was 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 the first thing to, to just start to incorporate some of those things, things that you wouldn't have picked up from just looking at rates markets. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. That's great. So you mentioned that you also have followed gold. Like, can you maybe just give me a, just a brief outline of sort of the, the currencies that you follow most closely and, and do you still follow gold? And then do you view crypto as an alternative currency or how do you view crypto in this landscape? Yeah, um, it, it's, it's funny because I've like, I've just got my screen. I've looked, I watched this list of um, my kind of macro like indicators um, and uh, like like for for the dollar, I, I'm always again. I mean, broad dollar. I, I tend to look at like euro dollar, uh, dollar yen, dollar CNH. So dollar CNH is is really important um, for various reasons. Um, I, I look at like the, some of the higher beta FX, so, so like dollar mex, dollar rand. Mm. Um, so so those things, and then I always look at oil. I'm always looking at gold, uh, and then like Nasdaq. Um, and then, uh, like treasuries, 10 year treasuries, two year treasuries. And I kind of, I, and then obviously Bitcoin, Ethereum. And that's kind of the first thing I look up, you know, when I wake up in the morning and I can kind of get a good sense to what's going on in the world just from looking at those, those few, few, uh, assets uh, and indicators. Um, but it's interesting now that, that Bitcoin is definitely, I, I think, you know, a, a, an asset class that's now having a more prominent role in, in, in the macro and um, it, A, in terms of what how it's impacted by the macro and B, even the impact it has back on the macro itself and, and on other asset classes. Yeah, that's fascinating. And um, so gold is something that interests me, especially as a U.S. investor. It's kind of the, the only vol market that I can really play in that has some liquidity to it. Um, what do you make of gold right now? We're, we're sort of hanging out at the all-time highs that – this is, I think, the fourth time we've we've touched these levels. Um, feels different to me, but I, I'm wondering kind of what your thoughts are, if if you have any on, on gold as a asset class. Yeah, like I, I think um, I, I think I think similar to like saying about the dollar, I think gold's sort of picking up on this change in rates regime mm-hmm. in the same way that crypto has, I, I guess, throughout um, the start of this year. Um, when I think about sort of Bitcoin versus gold, you know, gold is kind of like this low beta, this low beta safe haven, um, whereas sort of Bitcoin is this high beta. Um, I, I kind of, I kind of think they're both doing the same thing in many ways. It's just that you've still got this correlation with Bitcoin to broad risk. So, mm. so when the world's blowing up, you know, Bitcoin sells off with everything else. Um, and gold often then becomes the, the kind of safe haven. So it always has that, that kind of risk, risk premium sort of embedded into it. Uh, but then as soon as things sort of normalize and improve, 
then if it's a pure kind of rates play, you know, uh, currency debasement play, uh, you know, Fed, Fed, you know, keeping rates too easy or, or real rates too low, then then Bitcoin then starts to outperform. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of I, I used to you know be quite invested in gold, and then and then I discovered Bitcoin, mm-hmm. and I kind of think like I mean gold. Obviously, gold's kind of hitting its all-time highs, but it, it kind of feels to me that it it it's not done a great job, to be honest, over the last mm-hmm. sort of year or so um, in terms of hedging against inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of like, okay, this was its moment, right? You you had, you had you know Russia invading Ukraine, and and we felt like we were on the cusp of World War Three. Uh, you've had double-digit inflation. Uh, that looked to be running out of control. Um, so a lot of the gold bugs are out there. Like this is your moment, right? Gold should be going to to the levels that you've spoken about. Um, and it kind of, it's kind of like okay, we, we're touching some, some all time highs. Uh, but I think overall you'd be sort of disappointed in terms of how it's traded, given all of that. Um, you know, and and again, it depends on your time frame that you're looking at, and, and, and Bitcoin still uh, outperforms over a longer time frame. Whereas then Bitcoin, you kind of get. You get that, okay, as we've seen sort of with the banking stress recently, it is playing a haven role, but it's playing it in the terms of, I think, Bitcoin, and I think of it as a hedge against the failure of the traditional financial system, and I, which is why I don't think of it as an inflation hedge, although you could argue if inflation runs out of control, that's also a failure of the fiat system. But I think of it more as a currency debasement hedge, and a failure of the financial system. So I think when 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 the banking system's blowing up, you're going to want to be long Bitcoin. And then when central banks are, are forced into doing the crazy, you know, QE and 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 just cutting rates so aggressively and debasing currency again, then you want to be long uh, Bitcoin. And you get these sort of small windows that you know where they they try and normalise. And, and you know we've had this sharp hike hiking cycle attempts at QT and and hence Bitcoin underperforms. But again, part of my thesis is that we can't stay in those windows for too long before things start to break Mm. um, because the system just can't support higher rates um, and it can't support a a, uh, smaller balance sheet. So as soon as you try and shrink the balance sheet, hike rates, it's not long before things start to break. And I think we're at that point again and then the, the answer will be ultimately to bring rates back down um, and to expand the balance sheet. And we saw that right back in March when, what, in the space of a, a week or so, the, the Fed balance sheet expanded by another $400 billion mm. and wiped out pretty much all the QE they'd done since the fall of last year. And actually, if you look at this year, even though that's been coming back down as some of these things get repaid and, and we've settled down a bit over the last month, uh, the Fed balance sheet is actually, despite QT, has actually expanded so far this year. And yet we're in a QT world. So we just can't escape that liquidity. And um, and the, the ultimate impact of that is to the base fiat currency. And, and Bitcoin, for me, is the ultimate uh, asset to hold over gold as well um, when, when we're in that with regime which we, we're in now. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like I like the concept of like, Bitcoin trading like a risk asset and also sort of trading like an alternative currency. I kind of view gold the same way in a sense like it has a little bit of the FX pair reaction. So during rate hiking cycle, it kind of gets smashed because gold has no yield. 
but it also has all those geopolitical events that, that make it more valuable, kind of what you pointed out to. And then it makes me think of Ethereum as the last one, which is which is really interesting right now because Ethereum is still considered an altcoin, so it trades a lot more like a risk asset than an alternative currency in my eyes. And we've had this year-to-date move that's really been led by Bitcoin. But typically in crypto rallies, we see outperformance from altcoins, not underperformance. And so now we're seeing underperformance from altcoins and Ethereum specifically, and we're seeing subdued implied volatility and realized volatility in Ethereum compared to Bitcoin. And it creates this kind of interesting landscape where, you know, maybe there's an argument to be made that if this is a crypto rally, Ethereum will catch up and outperform. But if this is a banking slash financial system breaking sort of event, then Bitcoin will outperform and continue to outperform. How do you view sort of the ETH versus Bitcoin narrative and, and where's your head out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I and I'll, I'll piss off some uh, Bitcoin max on this, but I, I, I'm still more of a lean towards ETH generally within my own portfolio. Um, mainly because I just think it's got a bigger network effect and I, I think it does a lot of things that, that Bitcoin uh, wants to do. But I, I think right now we're in an environment whereby the narrative for Bitcoin is so strong because it we kind of back to the core the core narrative of, of, and rationale of why Bitcoin emerged and and, and you know largely the, the failure of the banking system, you know, deposits not being safe in banks and all these other things. So like right now is right now is Bitcoin's moment. Um, I still I still think that carries on uh, until we kind of um, I, I I think we we're gonna still have a bit of a blow up moment in the banking system, um, and I, I think Bitcoin will continue to outperform. Um, but then then once once we once we kind of through that again in the same way that gold like Bitcoin for me just feels like that extreme you know, end, end the world type hedge mm-hmm. and certainly end of the fiat world hedge. And you just want to be long, long Bitcoin and out of everything else. Um, but then once, once things sort of normalize and then there may be crypto starts trading more idiosyncratically and then people start looking at the opportunities, um, you know, then, then, I, then I think ETH becomes, um, starts to outperform again. Um, I think as well what's, what's going to be really interesting you know, everyone gets excited in Bitcoin around the halvening event, and which is obviously typically being bullish for uh, Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's already deflationary. So, mm. you know, you're talking about, about this disinflationary event um, as the supply slows. Well, you've already got a deflationary asset in mm. Ethereum. So I, I, I'm interested to see... If if the things going on in the macro world calm down, you know, debt ceiling gets lifted, um, I, I I think we're just going to have the moment where the Fed cave and rates start getting cut again. We're doing QE, uh, Bitcoin will, will be off to the races, and then once once we kind of get comfortable with that regime, and then we start to see some rotation into the alts, and then people they'll it'll come at a time when we're looking at the halvening and what does this mean and then i think that's when that maybe people look at ETH and go actually this is already a deflationary asset mm. um and then it's interesting when it's gone on in the past week uh with the brc20 stuff on bitcoin and and that um and, and the congestion that's causing on the network to go okay well you know it, 
it has kind of Bitcoin overstepped what it was meant to do, mm. in which case do we not just prefer ETH? Mm. Um, so there's there's a few interesting dynamics at the moment. It's, it's interesting you ask because I, I keep looking at ETH Bitcoin thinking, are, are we going to see uh, ETH start to outperform from this moment? But I, I still kind of feel that with the banking issues in the background, and, and I still think we're yet to reach reach uh, ahead on that. Um, I think Bitcoin will, will still play a dominant role for the next few months. Mm, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'm kind of having the same, just from looking at the vol space, I'm kind of having the same conclusion as well. I'm looking at sort of Bitcoin vol right now, which could arguably be pretty cheap, even though we're probably going to consolidate at 30K. But then if you looked at ETH vol being sort of equal to Bitcoin vol, that means that ETH is relatively cheap. And then you have kind of this interesting skew component in ETH. I think there's a really good argument to be made that ETH is sort of being forgot about and overlooked right now. And it's a good opportunity to sort of pick up some ETH vol um, and essentially some, some long delta while no one's looking type of deal. Yeah, I, I certainly, I mean, I, I wrote in the, the Macro Pulse this week, um, the newsletter right, for Paradigm, just, just saying like, what's really difficult at the moment is that I, I actually think we're, we're stuck in this kind of rangy market, both for Ether and for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, we, we had this really nice move up on this kind of peak rates, peak Fed narrative. I think the, what's been difficult is that there's a low, uh, Powell, you know, set set the scene for a pause last week. The data is still kind of mixed. Like the mm. labour market still looks resilient. Uh, signs that it could be rolling over, but for now it's still resilient. You know, inflation still is is stubbornly high. It's coming lower and, and it, it, it's peaked, but it's just not coming down quick enough. So I kind of feel that we can't now fully embrace the next leg of this kind of macro regime shift. To, to the pause and eventually the cuts, even though rates market is pricing in the cuts. Um, I think that's doing that more on a kind of like probabilistic distribution type idea that, you know, if, if we do go into a deep recession and things turn quickly, then you're actually looking at, you know, 200 bips of cuts quite quickly by year end. Uh, likelihood is we, we maybe don't see that, don't see any cuts, but net net, you know, it's been pricing 50, 70 bips of cuts is, is probably probably about right on, on balance. Without this this clarity on the macros that we can kind of take the next leg higher, which we should, I still think the next leg is higher, I think we're in this consolidation mode. Um, it's, it's, we, we lack in that sort of narrative of that trigger for the next leg. Now, I, I think that's actually going to come from the banking sector um, and we keep sort of threatening it. And then uh, obviously around the collapse of SVB, kind of government stepped in and did what it did. But, you know, we had a good move around that. Um, and then the next moment was First Republic. Mm. Um, but we kind of found that private sector solution and with JP Morgan stepping in. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, ne the next the next shoe to drop, and I think it probably dropped, uh, just looking at the regional banks index is back turning lower again. Mm -hmm. um, that falls over the next few weeks. Then you've probably got the next kind of... Um, you know, trigger for, for the next leg higher. But we, we're kind of in this, this range bound uh, world that it's really, it's really difficult to, to keep trying to buy a vol and just bleed theta all day long. Um, when we're not going anywhere equally, given all of the risks, um, with, with the banking sector, with, uh, you know, the, um, the debt ceiling, all, all these other things, it's difficult to want to short vol either. Mm. So we kind of just sort of drifting in no man's land. Um, 
I think we've spoken about quite a bit about paradigm about you know some of these um, vol overriding strategies. So I kind of think in the absence of any real conviction to do anything else, it probably just kind of weighs gradually on mm. on on the volatility surface. Um, but and the point I was making in the micro pulse, if, you, if you're directional and longer term directional, then we're at really good levels to start and, and cheap levels to, to pick up some uh, some cheap optionality and, and mm. leverage to play for a, a topside move, maybe, I don't know, in, in, in Q4. Yeah, yeah, that, that's how I feel too. Like, it feels like short term, we got some consolidation, but also looking at where Vol's priced, like, it's still really interesting. Like, it seems like a lot of it seems priced in. Um, yeah. Well, um, something, something actually to ask you, Greg. Um, I remember when we had you on on the, the Big Picture podcast with Paradigm, and, and you said something that really stuck with me about you know typically when Vol's selling off, you, you, you want to sell it and and, and vice versa, um, and, and play that momentum. Like, how, how do you feel with that now? Given we, we keep drifting lower in, in Vol's, um, do you sell it here or no? Oh. I'm not selling. I'm not interested in selling here. Like. Typically, when balls low, there's like a really steep term structure. That's really interesting. We saw that in Q4 of last year, and that like that makes buying a ball very expensive because you just roll down and there's a lot of theta uh, as well. So like shadow theta from IV roll down and regular theta from just decay, time decay. Right now, it just looks like, especially with ETH specifically, like the relative vol seems cheap. The world seems like full of unknown unknowns. I think we're like one job, one bad jobs report away from like things maybe moving or we could see another bank go down or we could see like some crazy stuff. I don't want to see like China invading Taiwan or something like that. It seems like, okay, I'm interested in nibbling at, at some ETH wall here. I also think if we're looking at a crypto rally, like a traditional crypto rally, typically ETH will outperform. Now, obviously there's a good solid narrative for this not being a traditional crypto rally but i think like if we're playing the mean reversion game that mean relationship should come back and so i think there's mean reversion to be had on relative vol for eth i think there's mean reversion to be had on altcoin outperforming in, in a bull market and i also think you know long vol a crash is good too if you're long vol um if we do have a, a recession crash then ETH trades more like a risk asset. And so it should therefore crash more than Bitcoin as well. So I think kind of all those directions seem to make a ETH an interesting nibble here. Um, so that's that's kind of where I'm yeah. thinking, yeah. But typically, yeah, I do, typically I'd, I'd rather short, short ball, um, but right now it's not how I'm feeling. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, and I, I do feel like as well, we're... It's just got that, you know, my, my kind of spidey sense just tells me that we, you know, we, we are on the verge of things breaking out. Mm. Um, you know, if I look at, and, 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 and you know, took my book, I, I think for me, it'd probably be to the top side in, in, in risk and that generally, I, I'm looking at like the dollar, you know, it just, it just keeps looking at this 100 level in DXY and then, you know, backs off of it. Um, you know, rates like ten-year yields like keep trying to sort of push below this, this kind of three forty level and, and do it. They break for a little bit and then, and then sort of pops back up. Two two-year yields had a big move lower last week and then 
bang is, is popped back up but it, it just feels everything's like ready to go at the same time mm. you know you had that flash flash crash in oil last week mm. um and that and now it's kind of back up and it, it's all back to levels where back within ranges that we've been for the last few weeks um i, I just feel the, the pressure's building for the dollar to break lower for yields to break lower uh, for oil to break lower um, which then I actually think sends gold up, which I think sends Bitcoin up. Um, and, and we kind of end up having this kind of blow off top type move. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of think you, you want to be trying to position long vol, um, right now and, and, and you're know, taking advantage of, of these moves. And it's like all, all things in trading, it, it, it never feels comfortable when it, even when it's the obvious trade to do, but it, it feels like it's probably the time to be doing it. Yeah. I'm right there with you. So I want to just jump back to Lehman Brothers. So just kind of going back, going back in time here. So this is really interesting. So you were at Lehman Brothers from what year to what year? So, so, and you, you might want to take this on board when when I talk about timing of markets. Um, I joined in two thousand and seven. <laughs> um, so I was quite young, like just sort of junior, junior guy on the desk. Um, Thought I'd made it, you know. I mean, Lehman's was a great place. Um, like, in terms of like intensity of a trading floor and uh, and what have you. Uh, I mean, I, I'd probably be dead now if I'd stayed there. But um, it, it was a, it was a great experience, a great place. But yeah, joined in joined in '07, um, like about mid '07. Was there about a year, and, and then you know the, the wheels kind of came off. Um, I was actually out before the actual D-Day um, in September when it went under, but, but literally the whole desk were getting let go and um, I, I got an offer to go elsewhere and, and I, I sat down the head of trading at the time and, and said, look, you know, what's happening? And, and he was like, look, I, honestly, I think the writing's on the wall. Mm. Um, and I, I, I just got engaged at the time and, and stuff like that. It was a bit, oh shit, what's going to happen? Um, but yeah, so, and, and you, it wasn't a surprise to me when it finally went. Um, that that was that was coming for a long time. Yeah, so people could feel it. it. Like, obviously, not everyone understands. I mean, no one has insight completely into the balance sheet and sort of what the valuations of certain assets are going to be and stuff like that on your employer's balance sheet. But some people could feel. No, yeah, yeah, you just could feel things went right. I mean, say we were letting a lot of people go. The, the other thing as well that um, that I remember, I remember calls with, with with some hedge funds at the time um, and some senior people at Lehman's that I, I was able to, to to be a part of, and um, and basically, you know, we're just Lehman just reassuring everyone that we, we don't have a solvency issue here at all. Mm. Um, you know, we, we feel well placed, and and, and I, I kind of think they they. They believe that and it's probably true. And again, it's kind of informed my sense that liquidity issues quickly become solvency issues. Yeah. Um, and we, I think you've kind of seen that in the Silicon Valley Bank and others. You know, the moment, the moment you have to start selling off your assets to raise the liquidity and then you, you become a full seller. And then, and then we have this spiral where collateral values that you think you've got on your, on your, as your assets quickly become worth a lot less. Um, and then your liquidity problem goes to a solvency problem. But I, I remember, I, re- I remember having calls with various hedge funds where we were trying to reassure of our, our solvency position and you know there not being an issue. 
they their response back was yeah we look we don't have any issue with you guys we get that um but at the same time we were seeing them constantly unwind like all their swap business that they had on um with, with lehman's and they obviously their response was, look, we're just de-risking everywhere um but it was one of those where you get off the call and you're like you're not de-risking this is mm. you, you you've got deep concerns about things um so yeah it, it was i think people felt the right was on the wall I think I think maybe some of the, the longer term guys that have been there. I mean, Lehman built a real sense of family, and um, you know, people people had their life savings. You know, guys guys that are really good market guys. You know, having so much for their wealth in in Lehman stock. Mm. Um, I think I think they were probably more shocked, but maybe me coming in with fresher eyes, could, you know, really felt it. But yeah, it was it was for for quite a few months and, and really, really I think from the moment Bear Stearns went it was um, yeah it, it, it just felt the writing was on the wall um, and you know one of the things it it's really taught me is you know the whole thing of banking is a game of confidence mm. um, and everyone's trying to trying to you know maintain the level of confidence in the system so so hence I, I'm not I, I don't feel better when I see Yellen come out and say you know the right. banking system's safe when I see a, a bank CEO come out and say you know we've got no issue mm-hmm. um, often if you're being being forced to come out of those statements mm-hmm. you, you've got issues <laughs> um and and that's, yeah i don't i don't think the current situation in banks is, is is 2008 i think it's very very different um however I, I, you know i i am aware of how complex and integrated our financial system is and i can't believe when you've had two of the biggest bank failures in history in, in first republic and silicon valley bank that you know the the kind of butterfly effect of that isn't going to be 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 felt still. Um, and yeah, we kind of ran that in in crypto right last year when when you saw um, uh, from the whole sort of lunar collapse and Celsius and and then you kind of felt that was all done. And then down the line we we get FTX, mm-hmm. which I think really was a, a result of that. Um, I think you're going to see that that in in the in the banks and how bad it is. I you know. Um, I'm not sure, but I, I, one thing I do think is that we, we're going to see a really, really deep credit crunch that I think is going to drive quite a deep recession. Um, so I, I am on the side that we will see Fed reverse those rate hikes pretty quickly. And certainly if they don't, um, then they're going to be forced into massive liquidity provision. I think the Fed balance sheet will explode um, as a result of what the Fed will need to do to kind of backstop the, the, the financial yeah. markets. Which which brings us to the same place, no matter what direction it goes. Yeah, it's the same same end result. Yeah, I, 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 either way, which may be a, a dangerous from a trading point of view, a dangerous position to be in because I kind of feel it's like like heads I win, tails you lose type mm-hmm. situation. I, I, I but the Fed, the, the the reason what's driving this problem and the deposit outflows from banks is because rates are too high. Um. So and when you've got inverted yield curves. Banks can't raise deposit rates uh, sufficiently, um, you know, to stem the the deposit outflow, which is in search of higher yields in market uh, money market funds. Um, so, so therefore, they're, they're gonna. But if they raise deposit rates, they're gonna become unprofitable, or they just keep them there, and then they're gonna keep watching deposits flood out the system. Um, so, I, I don't see what stops that without the Fed cutting rates. 
Uh, now, the Fed have got this problem with inflation. It's still too high for them to come and address that. But but what eventually will allow them to do it is is I mean you, you saw the um, you saw the slews the the, the uh, lending numbers last night um, not as bad as feared but it's not really taken into consideration um, you know events of the last couple of weeks um, I think it would have caught the tail end of, of what had gone on with Silicon Valley Bank so but already within that you're, you're starting to see uh, banks tighten credit you're actually starting to see. Um, you're starting to see the end customers and, and demand for loans fall. So I, I think we're going to see quite a rapid deterioration in the US economy, um, and which will bring inflation down probably quite quickly. And then the Fed will have the cover to cut rates. If they don't, I, I just think the Fed balance sheet is going to explode because I think the next bank that goes, you know, JP Morgan can't buy everyone. Um, and then, you know, they, they're going to have to backstop deposits and, and, um, and, and the, the lending facilities they set up around Silicon Valley Bank and what have you, um, will start getting tapped in much bigger size. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Something that, uh, you said earlier, like, uh, liquidity events quickly become solvency events. I've heard this saying before and I like it a lot. It's bankruptcy starts slowly, then it happens all at once. And I think a lot of things like that happen in society, whether it's, you know, maybe a, a sovereign crisis happens slowly, then it happens all at once, uh, a war happens slowly, then it happens all at once, and all those types of destabilizing events. Um, and if it just feels like that, for whatever reason, to me. Yeah, and, and it's strange to me that, I mean, you know, history, um, saying history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, despite, despite us knowing that, and it's funny, and some arguments I'll get in with people on Twitter, like, but I'm, I'm not saying the situation we're in now is 2008, but I think it's silly trying to draw 2008 comparisons mm -hmm. because every crisis is different. And we know that every crisis is different. So, you know, it, it, it will be different. The spark and, and the trigger is always different. But but nonetheless, when you know it, these things start slowly and 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 then all they, they happen all of a sudden, and it will be in areas that we're maybe not even thinking about, mm -hmm. um, you know. And subprime wasn't an issue back in 08. It's like it's just a tiny sector of the market, mm -hmm. and then we and then we realise actually it's a really complex financial system, and and actually a lot of the CLOs and and all the derivatives that were were sort of built on top of that, um, that they're the things that are in trouble. I, I think we're going to see the same thing. And, and I think people need to at least be open to the fact that the potential is there for that we're sitting on, on a big crisis. And again, that's not that's not for the fear clickbait. I think that's just realistic. And, and, and history would tell you that that potentially we're doing that, which is why I was surprised that the Fed, you know, still hiked the other week. I, I thought, um, you know, from a risk management point of view, it would have made sense to say, look, we're just going to hold off here because another 25 bips probably doesn't do anything for inflation at this point. And in fact, we got the lags, you know, I mean, and people forget that as well on inflation. You got a 12 month lag typically on monetary policy. So, you know, we barely started to feel the effects and the feed through from, from the tightening cycle of the last mm -hmm. year. Um, you know, they, they are very much at the beginning of it this time of last year. So, you know, for, for given how much they've done and given you've got a banking sector that looks under immense stress, <laughs> I, I think the prudent thing would have been to say, look, we're going to hold, see how this plays out. We think, you know, the credit time is going to do the job. Inflation looks to have rolled over. Um, but, you know, potentially 
whilst the 25 bits won't do much for inflation, it might be the thing that just, again, tips things over the edge. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So, David, let's just wrapping up here, thinking, what do you like to do outside of following macro, crypto, FX, global events? What do you like to do for fun? Uh, yeah, fun. Um, so I've got two young daughters, they're 11 and 9, uh, so they keep me busy. So a lot of my recreation has been replaced by taking them around for, so they can uh, pursue theirs. But a uh, big, big sports fan, uh, big big football or soccer fan, as you guys uh, you guys would call it. Um, so I, I played I played a lot of football when I was younger. Um, so don't don't play so much now, but but sort of follow that. And then then I'm really big like my kind of hobby, if you like, outside of markets is I'm very much into like my meditation and um, sort of power of the mind type stuff. So um, I like to meditate, and I'm just fascinated, um, you know, with with that the mind body sort of connection. Uh, read a lot around that. Um, yeah. I don't know if you know Vim Hof. Have you heard of Wim Hof and no, Wim Hof breathing? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Wim Hof's a Dutch guy, and, and he's developed this breathing technique. Um, that that's sort of really cool. So, so sort of doing that, and he's got a whole sort of method involving ice baths and, and stuff. Um, so yeah, quite into my meditation, um, and and then yeah, my the sports huge. All, all sports. Um, I've got quite into uh, quite into American sports over the last few years. Um, like at the end, NFL has become quite big over here cool um so so yeah there's like sun, sunday nights now i'm kind of glued to that that's <laughs> awesome that. and then last last question here do you have any favorite trading books joe trading books no um i, I i'm not actually been a big reader of, of um sort of trading books but i like if i was to pick one out it'd be liars poker i guess um that's a great one but yeah like um yeah so i don't i i kind of feel like my life's so much spent like in the game that you know when, when i'm reading but again most of the books i'll read will be more around things with a more kind of spiritual um feel so like my my, my favorite book would be like the alchemist from paulo coelho i don't know if you ever read that um but but like that that's probably sort of one of my favorite books which kind of pushes the idea about you know that's sounding too uh too off the wall but like our our connection to like universal energy and cool. and like the that you know our, our our the power we have to kind of you know create the lives that we want and and then the the, the, the serendipity and coincidences in life and i'm fascinated by that that is awesome well david thank you so much for coming on really appreciated your macro insights and your crypto insights all, all around and uh, I think listeners learned a lot, and I, I did as well. So thank you so much. Thanks, Greg. Great, great to uh, thanks for having me on.